Let's pray together, church. Father, it's with great joy that we come together once again to study your word. We know that you are the living God. And so, Lord, we ask for your life to come into us today, for you to lead us and give us joy in your word. It's in the name of Jesus that we ask this. It's in the power of the Spirit in which we pray. Amen. I grew up in a culture that, uh, that rarely talked about the book of Revelation. And uh, when we did, it was hard to comprehend. Uh, last week, I began a message on some thoughts from the book, and, and several of you said, well, I, 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 want, I want to finish. I'd like to hear it. And so for you, uh, today we, we finish this message. But I want to do this with a, a great humility before you, because for years and years, uh, I, I would avoid this book. Because it was so hard. And I can remember that being a youth pastor here at the church, that some of the teenagers were enthralled with revelation because of dragons and, and wars and, and destruction and such. And some years ago, I, I made the commitment to do a thorough study. Of what this book really means. And, and I, I've, I looked at each perspective of it. And, and saw that there was much of. It was overwhelming to me. To think that I had to try to figure out. What each of these signs meant. In today's day and age. Were the scorpions helicopters with with tails and 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 guns and and trying to make all of these signs match and i fear that that one of the problems with our our community as a whole not just in plaquemine but our community of a, a christian community as a whole has is that we are scared of the last book of the bible we're scared to read it because we don't know what it means and then it says at the end if, if you take these words and you, you change them, then the curses of this book are upon you. And, and so it's a frightening thing to, to say, I don't want to misinterpret it, so I'm just going to avoid it. And I've heard that from many of you that I'm looking out and seeing today. And, and it's, it's, we're not alone. Uh, even the great... Um, Theologian John Calvin, he wrote a, a, a commentary on every book of the Bible except, guess what? Revelation. But the more that I study this book, uh, the more I am, am enamored with it. And uh, I know my wife oftentimes rolls her eyes because I, I, have, I have studied this book for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours Trying to figure it out because uh, it, it's a challenge. And the more I study it, the more I am, I'm just blown away 
by the beauty of what's going on here. And really, the simplicity of what's going on. And I, today I've spent, I mean, just this week I've spent 30 hours for this 40-minute message for you. It may not mean a whole lot to you, but it does to me. I don't know if that makes sense. I hope what I can do is, is help you come to the knowledge of some biblical truth today. Uh, this is a gift from God to us. And it is my gift to you today to, to try to walk through some of this in, again, in great humility. But there is, there, there is gold in these hills. And so let's begin this morning. Uh, if you weren't with us last week, uh, what I shared last week was, was this to, to summarize quickly. This book is primarily about the judgment that God has wrought on Jerusalem in AD 70. Not, not every bit of it. But most of the content of this book is about a judgment that God was bringing in a transition exactly like what we looked at with this cup today. Because there there had to be a hard stop to what for since Abraham and and for Moses for 1500 years had guided a people every week in a temple, in a tabernacle and as a form of. Of worship, there needed to be a hard stop to that. Jesus came and initiated in his cup the new covenant of his blood, but many of his people still followed the form of Judaism. And so the Lord finally brings about what, what the people asked for. May his blood be upon us and our children. And the Lord answers that request. And that is in AD 70 when the great destruction comes. I showed you last week that no less than six times he said this will happen soon. And uh, within probably two to four years after he writes this, uh, this is accomplished. Uh, Jesus said in his Olivet Discourse that within the generation of the people he was talking to, that all these things would come to pass. Uh, So all of this makes sense. And I told you also that that really this is a book of the tale of two cities. Jerusalem has now turned into Babylon. And in the Old Testament, if, if you study it as we've walked through the Old Testament, you see that Babylon is the one who brought judgment upon Jerusalem. But Babylon was a wicked city. And, and we see people like Nebuchadnezzar in the Old Testament, how they were just arbitrarily killing people and throwing people into to lion's dens and into fiery furnaces and these sorts of things. Jerusalem has now become that to the Christian church, the early Christian church. And if you read the book of Acts, you'll see it. It parallels Perfectly. And the blood of the martyrs is now being called upon them. A tale of two cities. That's the first city, the, the old Jerusalem. 
or as, as John writes it, the current Jerusalem. And then there's a new Jerusalem that's coming down out of heaven. And we began to look at that last week. And that's kind of where we ended and we'll pick up today. But the new Jerusalem is, is not really a city, but it's a, it's a people. And, and Christian, it's you and it's, it's me. And it's the bride of Christ who has come down to dwell with God in a new and in a permanent way. Today we focus on this, and I alluded to it last week. Someone asked me last week, well, what is, why does all that matter? And that is a fair and a good and a right question. Why does it even matter? I've done fine avoiding this book for lots of years. Why do I really need to understand it? And I want to, I want to answer that with a, a simple response and then go through it and give you the full Bible response. And, and here's the, the answer to that question is because the bride has a purpose. And if we understand what the entire Bible leading up to this moment gives to us, I think we will see, okay, what is the purpose? And then we can say, I'm reading this book because I know that God brings judgment. God brings, has a people that he's called out, but he has a purpose for those people. And I think we'll see some of that as we, as we dig in. So we're going to begin way back at the beginning. Uh, in fact, at the very beginning. And that is... Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And, and uh, this is going to take a little time, but, but here's what I want you to see. In the Bible, there's a theme. And you may or may not have seen it. You may have not have ever studied it, but it, it is a theme of mountains. And if you study the theme of mountains in the Bible, you're going to find a few things. I've studied this for, for hours this week. Here's what you find. Mountains have a connotation, have a have a. a, a an understanding about them, especially in, in the ancient peoples. Mountains were places where, where the Lord or where God visited his people. Mountains were places, in fact, you've read it, you just don't know you've read it. But when you read about high places, what happens at high places? Have you read it? You remember, you, y'all know what I'm talking about when Solomon and, and all, they have all these high places and Solomon would tear down the high places. Well, those are hills or mountains where people go to worship their gods. Mountains are a place where where it was believed people could meet with God because it was closer to the heavens, if you will. And you can read Hebrews 12. If you want to write these down, if you want more study, Hebrews 12 and Galatians 4, you can see. Even the New Testament authors look at mountains and see them as places where people meet with God. Let me give you the first mountain, though, and that is right where we, we started. Uh, it's, it's in Eden. And, and we're going to need this mentality of mountains are places where God meets with his people. Genesis 1-1 reads this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Notice that God is creating a place. And then God created an area in this and he called it Eden. And this is something that sometimes we, um, we miss. But within Eden, there's something. What, what's within Eden? 
that we know of. There's a garden. And, and most people call it the Garden of Eden, thinking that that's the whole area. But, but here's the, the, the deal is Eden is an, a broad area with a garden in it. And what many people don't know is that Eden was, was believed to be on a, a mountain. And that is where God would meet with his people and display his glory. And out of Eden, if you, if you read in chapter 2, you'll see. Uh, well, let me back up a little bit. God placed his people in this garden to meet with him, which is, again, uh, believed to be on a mountain. And I'll, I'll show you why in just a moment. And four rivers flowed out from this mountain down to nourish the land and to bring life. And God gave Adam and Eve a command in Genesis 1.28. He said this. God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God's asking them to broaden out what I've given to you. Fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it. Institute what I have given to you, rule and reign over this world that I'm giving you, over this earth, and over the, and watch what he says, the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and every other living creature or thing that moves on the earth. God gave a mandate. Hey, I'm, I'm putting you in this garden that's going to flow down, the rivers will flow down, and bring life all around, and I want my renown to be everywhere. Make sense? This is the, the creation mandate, some call it. God has given the mandate to Adam and Eve to go and do this. Rivers were running through this, and, and you're going to see why this is important. Genesis 2.6, a mist or a spring, could be translated, was going up from the land and watering the whole face of the ground. Genesis 2.10, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there was divided, there it was divided and it became four rivers. So you've got one river coming out and then dividing into four rivers, watering the garden and bringing life. We read in Isaiah 51.3. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden and her deserts like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Eden was a place of life, of joy, and of gladness. Now, we all know, because we've, we've studied all last year, that creation came and then the fall, and that fall didn't, or, and, and that dominion was taken a little too far by Adam and Eve. In fact, a lot too far. They took it into their own hands. They fell, they broke. But God did not forget Eden. In fact, you see it in Isaiah, him alluding to it, nor does he. And at the end of the Bible in Revelation, we're going to see a very similar picture. That God has created a place for him to dwell with his people and this rivers to flow out and to bring life to all of the surrounding areas. And for his dominion to flow out for his rule and for his reign, his kingdom to flow out and to grow. Now, let me give you a second mountain in Scripture. And it's this. It is Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai. Now, many of you know Mount Sinai and what happened there. But this was after the people of Israel are taken captive and they are led out of Egypt by Moses. Moses is the representative to go up on a mountain. 
And do y'all remember what's happening on top of that mountain? Thunder, lightning, things that are making everybody afraid. And all of the people step back and say, Moses, go up there for us. We don't want to meet God. You go meet him for us. They were terrified of God. And so Moses climbs the mountain and he meets with God on top of that mountain. Most of y'all remember this. He meets with God. God gives him commandments. God gives him the law. And he says, this will be my people. I will be their God if they obey and keep my commands. And that was the old covenant. And he brings it down for them on stone tablets. Two copies of this thing. And by the time he gets down the mountain, as we all know, the people are in idolatrous Sin. Listen in Deuteronomy how Moses describes this, this covenant and this people that he says. He says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. God made a covenant and said, you are my holy people. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. And out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. They were there to glorify his name. What does that mean to glorify his name? To show who God is. In Isaiah 43.10, it says, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen. Israel, I've chosen you to be my witness. That you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. Israel was a witness to God, to who he was. Now, let me show you something that that, uh, I hadn't seen for many years, but I've seen recently, in the recent years. In Isaiah 51, 16, this creation of a new covenant that God made with, uh, with Moses and the people of Israel, look how Isaiah describes it. Isaiah 51, 16. I have put my words into your mouth now. I've given you my law. I've put my words in your mouth and covered you with the shadow of my hand. And when I read that, I think of Ruth when when he's calling to Boaz as the redeemer to cover me with your wings. I have put my words in you, Israel. I've covered you with the shadow of my hand. Establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth. And saying to Zion, you are my people. Notice how in an establishing the covenant with Israel, giving them the law, placing his wing over them or the shadow of his hand over them. Which remember, Moses was covered by God in the cleft of the rock. He says he's establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth with them. He's creating a whole new world for them, if you will. Like in Eden, God is choosing a people to go be his witnesses and to share his glory among them. Watch this in Isaiah 65. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I created. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. 
No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall not die a hundred years old. I'm sorry. For the old man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. Now, I've read this passage over and over and, and thinking this new heavens and new earth idea must be the end of time. Right? And, and this has to be the end of times. He creates a new heaven and new earth. And then as you read it, you go, but people are dying. And if you look at this verse, it says people are dying 100 years old. And I go, man, that doesn't make sense. Why are people dying in the new heavens and new earth? And why are the sinners there being accursed at 100 years old? Well, maybe he's not talking literally about our future. Maybe he's talking about what he alluded to earlier in Isaiah of this covenant that God has made as a whole new world. Well, let's keep going. Jerusalem continues to to follow God's covenant and then comes Jesus. And we get to the new covenant. Jesus shows up. And in Mark chapter 11, Jesus does a curious thing. He passes by and he sees a tree. And that tree doesn't have any fruit on it. And what does he tell that tree? He curses that tree and he says, you'll never bear fruit again. Well, that seems odd for Jesus to be mad at a tree, doesn't it? Doesn't it? You'll never bear fruit again. Well, if we know our Old Testament, we know that oftentimes Israel was compared to a tree. And what he's saying is, well, you're refusing to bear fruit for me. You will never bear fruit again. Let's read it in Mark chapter 12, beginning of verse 20. As they passed along in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away at its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus said to him, have faith in God. And then he takes it even a step further. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, whoever says to this mountain, what mountain is Jesus on? He's on the mountain of Jerusalem. Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and be thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done to him. Now, some of you may say, well, what's the big deal about that? Here's the deal with that. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, among others, call Israel a vine, a fig tree, and a mountain. Jesus has just cursed this tree and says, you have no fruit in you. I'm going to curse you and you will not bear fruit again. And then Jesus says, if you take this mountain and you pray and you say, throw it into the sea. And you believe that God will do it. If you put it all together, what you see is that Jesus is saying, I am moving on from my old covenant. 
I'm casting it into the sea, and now I'm beginning with a new people. And a people who will represent me as witnesses appropriately. A people not like this tree, but a people who are going to bear fruit for me. We come to Revelation chapter 8, verse 8. Watch what happens. Second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain... Something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into, into what? Oh, into the sea. Was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea became blood. Psalm 46, I don't have it up here, but Psalm 46 says, Though the mountain be thrown into the sea, God is our refuge and strength. Revelation chapter 18, verse 21. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone, threw it into the sea. So will Babylon, who he named earlier as Jerusalem, will, the great city will be thrown down with violence and be found no more. And the sound of the harpists, the musicians, the flute players, the trumpets will be hear, hurting you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be heard no more. And the sound of the mill will be hurting you no more. This brings me to the third mountain. First mountain is Eden. The second mountain is Mount Jerusalem or Mount Zion, Mount Sinai, the Old Covenant. Let me give you the third mountain that we see. And this is what we see as a place where God meets his people. Now, now let me back up just for a moment. If this is confusing or new to you, think about it this way. When God is creating covenants with his people, he's creating them in a high place. We see the Adamic covenant, the covenant of Adam created in Eden with the rivers flowing down from it. We see the second covenant, the covenant with Moses created on a mountain. And then remember this. Remember back to Matthew 5. When Jesus comes upon a mountain and we colloquially call it the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus begins to give out the ways you have heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said, but I say to you. Here is this new covenant that Jesus is beginning now with what I say to you to correct the character and nature of God that had been changed so much. This was a symbolic new covenant that Jesus was creating with his people. Look in Matthew 5, 14. Through 16. Look what Jesus tells them after he's, when he's working through this new covenant with them. You are the light of the world. And then watch what he says. A city on a hill. What was the city on a hill that everyone in Jerusalem would have known? I mean, everyone in Israel would have known. It was Jerusalem on the, perched on the top of a mountain. Look what Jesus says. You are... The light of the world, a city on a hill or on a mountain, it's the same word, a city on a mountain, same Greek word there, cannot be hidden. It is a witness, exactly what God called for them to do in Eden and what God called for them to do at Sinai 
He's calling for his new covenant people to do. You are the city on a hill. He said, it cannot be hidden. Nor do people put a light, light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. Be my witnesses. So that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. We read this and go, wait. Okay, so now we see that Jesus is creating a new covenant with his people. He's meeting with his people on this mountain or on this hill. And he's now establishing a new world for them. And then we go back to Revelation 21 and you see it here. Then I saw Revelation 21. I went backwards, Lane. Sorry about that. Revelation 21, 1 through 3. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Now think about this. Written right after the destruction of Babylon the city, he says, the first heaven and earth passed away. The sea was no more. It had been cast into the sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, as a people adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God, he will be their God. Let me say this. This applies to all three people. The heavens and earth were a place for God to fellowship or meet with his people. They were this mountaintop experience, if you will. There is a new creation And so here's your application today. If you want application, what does all this mean? Here's what it means. God has created you, church, to be his witnesses or to be his ambassadors for all around. For us to be springs of living water. Flooding the valley. Flooding the people around us with life. Watch this. Let me give you one Old Testament passage which I think is so powerful. And I never understood it until I put all of this together. Uh, When I was at my church, we were in a band. I played guitar and we were in a praise band. And uh, we were looking for a name for a band. And uh, while we were practicing one night, uh, one of the guys, it was muddy outside. And he stepped into the mud at our house. And he went ankle deep into the mud. And so we were not very... uh, Smart back in the days, but we we like that. Ankle Deep. Well, let's name our band Ankle Deep. So I was in a band called Ankle Deep. And so we went to our church and we played. And they, they wanted to know the name of our band. What's the name of our band? We said, well, we're Ankle Deep. And one of my church members uh, at my pastor's came up and said, you know what? That reminds me of Ezekiel. Now, this person knew the scripture a lot better than I did. And this person started quoting from Ezekiel 47. And read it to me and, and us as a band. And we looked at her like, what are you talking about? I have no idea what you mean by this. I'm going to read it to you. And I went years having no idea what this was talking about until I, I put all this together over the past few years. Watch this. Ezekiel 47. This is a vision from Ezekiel. And if you're not familiar, Revelation follows Ezekiel almost like a road map. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east. 
for the temple faced east. And water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by the way of the north gate, and he led me around to the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, there was water trickling out on the south side, going eastward with a measuring line in his hand. The man measured a thousand cubits. So he went some distance, and he led me through the water, and it was what? It was ankle deep. There was our band right there. So he's, he's, he's going further, and he's finding that the water coming from this temple is now ankle deep. Verse 4, again he measured a thousand, and he led me through the water, and it was knee deep. Again he measured a thousand, and led me through the water. It was waist deep, and then a thousand again. The river, I could not pass through it, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, son of man, have you seen this? And you think, yeah, it's, it, there's a water, and it's getting deeper. What's the point? Then he led me to the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river many trees on one side and on the other. Remember that. Trees on one side or the other. And he said to me, the water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water becomes fresh. And where the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be many fish there. For the water that goes there, the water that... That the waters of the sea may become fresh. So every living, everything will live where the water goes. All right. That may sound crazy, but this water is coming from the temple, getting deeper and bigger and bigger and bringing life to everything that it touches. And even the bitter waters or the salt waters of the sea are receiving this water. And now it's becoming fresh and sustaining of what is life. It may not be clicking for you yet, but let me now jump to John chapter 7. Jesus is before the people on the last great day of this feast. And in verse 37 it says this, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow what? What is it? What's going to flow? Rivers of living water. What flows from the presence of God in Ezekiel's temple is life. And it sustains life and it brings life. It is the spirit of God bringing life to all who are around it. And Jesus stands up and says, if anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. Rivers of water are going to flow out of you. Rivers of living water are going to flow out of you. Christian, new covenant believer. Now he said this about his spirit. Verse 39 tells us explicitly what he means back to revelation 
Revelation 22, the next chapter. God creates a new heaven and a new earth. He creates a new people, a new bride that comes out of heaven. And he gives them a purpose. And so, Dylan, if you've missed all that, I know that was a lot. Almost impossible to do in the time we have. But here's what I want you to take. God has created Eden as a people to display his glory. It failed. God has created Sinai or Jerusalem as a people to display his glory. They said, may his blood be on us and our children. We have no king but Caesar. God has created a new bride and a new covenant through his son. Then an angel showed me the river of the water of life. And I could say it this way. He showed me the river of living water. Bright as crystal flowing from where? The throne of God. Not in Eden rivers. Not in Ezekiel rivers. Flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb. Through the middle of the city and the the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, what was there? Trees. Remember I said remember that? There were trees of life. And the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit in each month. What did Jesus curse? That fig tree, because it wasn't bearing fruit. Now we have a tree bearing fruit. The leaves were for the healing of the nations, the peoples. Bearing fruit, giving it for the healing of all of those who need healing. Church, this is our job. Bear fruit for those around us to hear and be healed with the salve of the gospel. Verse 3, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. This is, again, the identification here. And night will be no more. There will be no lamp. They will need no light or lamp of the sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and he will reign forever and ever. He will be their people. There's a progression, as we saw in Ezekiel, of growing just like the kingdom of God in that progression that Jesus said was, was like, like yeast in a lump of dough. It's a growing influence that God has. And then look later in Revelation. Another interesting thing that leads me to know this is, this is what, what he's going after here. In Revelation twenty two fifteen, 15, he says this, outsiders... I'm sorry, outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, and the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. If this is pointing to our forever future eternity, why are these guys there? If this is pointing to the reality that God has created you and me to bear fruit, to bring the salve to the na- the gospel to the nations, these are those that need it. And so I want to tell you, church, I believe this is talking about you and about me. And when he says two verses later, the spirit and the bride say, come. This is where we ended last week. It is our job 
to say, to say sorcerers and idolaters and all of those who are outside, you need to come. Murderers, sexually immoral, the spirit and the bride say come, but you must come through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ the Lord. So church, I want to set us up to say this. The great purpose of what John has given us is a message to say, we have a message that Jesus Christ is the Lord. That we must bring to those around us. And church, if if that's not important to us, we're missing the point of the new covenant that God has made to us in Christ Jesus. He has made us to be a kingdom and priests to our God. That means ministering to those who are around us. And that's what this book is trying to bring us to. So church, in 2024, I would like for our church to be a place where we say we will proclaim that Jesus Christ is healing for the nations. We will proclaim that that those who need redemption have a savior in Jesus Christ, the Lord. And I want to partner with you, church, in this work. Jesus came to save sinners that will repent. And church, I want us to be a place where we are a light, where we are a city on the hill, where we clearly proclaim that Jesus is on the cross, was on the cross, that he was buried and he rose again to life because that is what brings redemption to the nations that need to hear it. Will you join with me? Will you join with me in that endeavor? Jesus says, behold, I am coming soon to bring my recompense with me, to repay each one for what he's done. Jesus will not withhold his judgment for those who do not know him. Church, let's be the vehicle, the city on the hill that proclaims the message of redemption to those around us. Let's pray together. Our Father, we're thankful for your word. We're grateful for the message you've given us. Help us to be that city on the hill, Lord. God, draw us into ways, into relationships, God, into circumstances that allow us to be a light and proclaim that Jesus saves sinners that repent. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.